Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, I am really excited this week, feel very fired up with the guest that we have, who is a behaviorist. And you're going to want to know all about that because I want to know much more about it, who's just produced a very exciting book, which she's going to tell us about in a minute. But but there's just so much energy and so much learning that I've already had from my guests. Without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Amelia Antonetti, and I am a behaviorist, and I'm also the CEO of a company called Designing Genius, that our main product is not only book, but the people operating system. Fantastic. Now, I've got to know, what is a behaviorist? So the easiest way to describe a behaviorist is to start with the baseline of what a therapist is. And so a therapist is somebody who's going to hold your hand and walk you through a journey that they believe is a pace that works for you. A behaviorist mirrors your current thought state and helps you see a process to say, is it working? Is it not working? Less concerned about your comfortability in the journey and more quick, measurable uh, tactics to the being side so that you're making quick decisions. And so you find behaviorists in crisis, in trauma, um, inside organizational development that's trying to herd like cats, a lot of people into a developmental process. And it's the behaviors and the triggers that cause people to not get where they're wanting to go. So your behaviorist is the mirror to go, this is really what's going on, or this is the problem that you're solving that's not the problem, or this is the solution that doesn't work for that problem. And that's much more quick facts and action oriented. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And, and of course, um, having been in the military for 20 years, there was many situations, whether it be I was in Bosnia, Northern Ireland, and friends of mine, special forces, who now are suffering from PTSD and could have done with a behaviorist because there was no one there really to, to work with them, to support them, and they were expected just to get on with it. And I think back to just keeping an eye on my dog, who's up to something and no good. I'm not quite sure where the puppy is. Um uh, my grandfather, who fought in the First World War in the Honourable Artillery Company, and poor George got smacked over the head with a, 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 a one of those wooden spikes with nails driven into it which through his helmet. And he was very badly brain injured, uh, left dead for dead for about two days, but crawled back. But he was never the same. He was always suffering from PTSD and things like that. And having someone to help him with that would have been great. But in those days, they just get on with it, dear, you know, stiff up a lip. And, and uh, you and I have just been talking about the Hoffman process and, and you've yeah. done the, the program in different formats for, for th- three times. I'm very impressed um, that, that Bob Hoffman was well ahead of his time with many of the concepts and ideas, which now we're taking as normal. But people, as you said to me earlier, thought he was completely nuts that many of the ideas of mindfulness and visioning and uh, certain practical exercises to break neural pathways and make new neural connections. Uh, now it's it's mainstream and people are going, of course, this is what you do. So it's very interesting for me meeting you, Alia, because there's that combination, that sort of spectrum of 
of coaching and therapy and then this behavior uh, that's behaviors. still really new right mm. it's really new and part of the reason why and again he was way ahead of his time part of the reason why a behaviorist is so necessary is that people struggle with uniting the being side which you're referring to and the tactical side right they work as two individual parallel parts of practice um and if you can't bring them into a flow right a har harmonious state of being as a wholeness right behaviorism works on wholeness then you're struggling between these two sides that are very disjointed. So the individual is still struggling, struggling through therapy or through trauma. Like you're, I work with a lot of first responders, military guys, they're still struggling between this and that. And until you bring it together, which is your behaviorist to unite the different aspects of you into your new you. Mm. Mm. Well, what's very interesting, I was just thinking of one of the CEOs I was just coaching earlier today, so much going on in his life personally um, with a, uh, an impending bereavement and, and various different issues that they've got. But their solution is workaholism, that they throw themselves into their work and work even harder as self-soothing to try and avoid the pain of facing up to what's really going on in their personal life. And, and I also think of many successful leaders who get to the top of the ladder, find the ladder metaphorically leaning against the wrong wall, and they find that their own relationships have fallen apart. I mean, I think in my, my own life, I probably was so committed to the military, I wasn't looking after my own first marriage, which probably was one of the reasons it failed but you can you can give your heart body and soul in the case of the military serving country and on operations where people will die um but there's a cost you know everything in life is possible if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences but the price and the consequences are often way too high i don't know what your thoughts are well it's interesting because you're pointing pointing out to a very very baseline behavior which is self-medicating and we have judgment in our society that the self-medicating of alcohol, drugs, or sex are worse than the self-medicating of being a workaholic. And the vice should never be part of your judgment because the behavior is the same. You're self-medicating, as you use the word to self-soothe, which is part of a very primary, right, fundamental makeup of humans. Humans all have self-medicating. It's just what vice you choose. But overindulgence in the vice, no matter what it is, causes major, major trauma to self and everybody within your circle that is trying to connect with you. So if we're having a relationship with me, you, and alcohol, or you, me, and drugs, or you, me, and the workaholic, the outcome is the same, damage. Mm. Well, that's, so that, a behaviorist that's... will mirror that, right? And see, that's where I'm talking about the difference between a behaviorist and a therapist. A therapist is going to lead you to that conclusion. I'm not going to lead you. I'm going to show you. Mm. Here it is. <laughs> Sit down, buckaroo. This is what it is. And here's the consequences of what you're trading. And then you go, is it working for you? That That is so interesting because 
for some time, I was very admiring of a special forces U.S. Navy SEAL guy called David Goggins. Oh, and I love oh, I love David Goggins. I <laughs> thought you might. Do. I, thought, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> want to be married to him, but no, I absolutely yeah. respect him. Yeah. And, and so do I. And, and and because I've done sort of mountain marathon to two, two days running up and down a six and a half thousand foot mountain. Me too. Kilimanjaro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cra- crazy stuff that, that our, our personality types in Enneagram, we decided we were both achievers and, and um, challenging types. But David Goggins pushed himself to such excessive amounts of exercise, endurance and things that he had, you know, feces running down his leg and he was wetting himself and he was bleeding everywhere. That that, that is his own version of self-medicating, that he used exercise and extreme pain and exercise to, to cope with him, his pain and, the, and the, the early life that he'd had, which was very, as he wrote in his book, very complex and very difficult. Is and that, he's created intimacy with that he has an intimate relationship with pain and push it right and so now if if you're going to try to offer a relationship with him you have to understand that in your intimacy with him there's another third entity that's interesting no yeah i love that one so look i'm always interested in people's life stories um you know what shaped you to be the leader and the CEO of your business, Designing Genius, the woman I meet today, what event shaped you in your early life that, that led to this? And, and this is the sort of the 10 minute version. So I'm open to whatever comes up. So I am um, the outcome of an immigrant family, very, very enthralled um, with coming to America. Um, my father was obsessed with, I'm literally obsessed, David Goggin kind of like obsessed with being an American. Um, and this country has offered me as a female things that would have never, never, never been in my existence if I stayed in my homeland. And with that, my father was highly uh, connected with the American dream, his version of the American dream. And he wanted that for us. Now, with every, you know, with every strength, there's a weakness. With every blessing, there's a curse. So my brothers and I are extremely um, connected to the American dream, the story. My father, my father, although he didn't serve in the military, loved this country like our military men and women do. My brothers are military men. I became the military family through my brothers, right? Home for the holiday. Like I, you know, I'm so, I moved, they moved, right? So I've been on, you know, Camp Lejeune. I've, and so I grew up with this intensity energy of this is the land of the opportunity and you must, must take full advantage of everything or you were lazy, right? Mm. You were lazy, you were, you know, and so- my household ran very military style. My dad was up, you were up. There was no sleeping after my dad got up. Um, and we worked, we're Italian. So we we all worked, we worked in the family business. We all contributed. We all came home at the end of the day and we put whatever our earnings was on the table before my father trying to like win and be like, you know, me and my brother, right? I was like, I gotta be the best, right? And so in the fundamental 
uh, development of Amelia was comp competition, um, enormous love and gratitude for this country, grateful to be here because that was always, I was sent home so often um, so that I could get a really good understanding of what my life would be like. But there was also the very heavily masculine energy and belief system that comes from the old country that my father would be like, if you just would be quiet, somebody would marry you. If you would just, <laughs> just shh, long enough, right? And so I craved the curiosity and the intelligence that was uh, presented to my brothers. And although I excel in my domestic abilities, right, because I'm an overachiever, I was so curious. And that was something that was very fearful for my father, right? My father's like, you're going to get killed if you continue this curiosity. And so that that started this interesting baseline between who I was told I needed to be to be successful as a female and survive versus this inner compass that I had on my own belief system of what I was called here to do. And so I had to go through huge points of trauma to come to where I am now. You know, things like, um, you know, my mother committed suicide when I was very young, right? Oh. I there was there was huge trauma. Um, I was emancipated at 15. I took legal custody of my brothers. Huge responsibility. Now a 16-year-old responsible for putting food on the table for my for my brother. You know, so this constant crossroads of trauma, trauma on top of trauma, on top of trauma, on top of trauma, that when I realized that I was responsible now for others, <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't think at 16, I was really ready to be a parent. I came into awareness through lots and lots of different, again, when you're emancipated, you're required to go into therapy. Therapy has been critical for me. Uh, introduction to the Hoffman, all different types of programs. I realized that my first responsibility was to break the cycle. And I will tell you for anybody who has gone through the journey to break epigenic type cycling is massive. Mm -hmm. So I knew that if I had done nothing else in life, but break the cycle of these belief systems that don't serve our current lifestyle, that that was my work to do. And once I started to do that, in order to, you know, provide, right? I had become a provider, right? Which is counter to my innate energy. So, so for the, those listening and for myself, when you say I was emancipated, yes, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> so that means that the state uh, of, at the time I lived in California, the state of California um, reviewed my home conditions and my abilities and made a legal decision that I would be treated and could uh, participate as a legal adult. I became an adult and therefore was able to do all the things that an adult could do. At, um, at 16? Correct. Two wow. weeks, two weeks, actually, legally two weeks between my before my 17th birthday. The process is immense, mm. um, which meant that I then could file as legal guardian for my brothers. Wow. And, and how many brothers were you looking after? Uh, at the time, my brother that's immediately underneath me 
And then as time began, the the other younger ones underneath that. But but initially it was me and my younger brother mm. and really taking on that responsibility. And there's no surprise here um, that my my younger brother became a Marine, right? Because mm. he was seeking this highly masculine male energy because I was the one raising him. And also this unit, this family unit that has been programmed in him for years about being an American, right? And if you're going to take a look at the military options, right, the highest rank would be Marine. And what I mean by that is if you have a relationship with pain and torture, the Marine Corps is for you, right? Mm -hmm. Is it is the most difficult branch. Um, and I, there's, I know there's lots of, con- I've had more military people who like to, you know, banter back and forth with that. You know, the, the Air Force is known for the level of intelligence you need to master. And the Marine Corps is definitely your relationship with pain. Yeah. Now, now this is very interesting because on the Hoffman process, as you know, there's, there's the questionnaire you fill in, which took some nine hours. Yes. And, the, and yeah. then there's, and then there's the annexes. Mm-hmm. One was if you lost a parent, which you and I both did. My, my father was two and a half. Uh, I was two and a half when my father was killed. He was in the pictures behind, which those watching can see. There's my father flying an American uh, fast jet where he was training in, in Texas. So that's one annex to fill in. Another one was if you went away in the in the Britain, we call it boarding school. You go you go away to school, which I did. So I needed to fill in that form. And then the third one was that I was either the son of someone in the military, which I was, naval pilot, uh, but also I went in the military myself. So um, the only thing I was missing in the annexes was that my neither of my parents were drug addicts or or um, uh, addicted to alcohol or, or other things, so whether it be drugs, sex, or... And sex. I had all of them. You had the whole lot, yeah. The whole lot. So so that makes us pretty busy, and uh, it, it's a lot of work for, for the... Hello, my brother. I've been waiting to meet you for years. <laughs> That's right. And so, so it is very interesting that um, the military has many great things that it's given me. However, what it did teach me very early on, I even went to a military boarding school, 16 to 18, was like, don't feel, and certainly don't cry. And you have to put this this mask on of this is the way you behave. And of course, since I had no father figure, apart from this hero who was on a plinth that my mother put up there who saved the lives of two other people, but he died in the process. How could you live up to that unless you were perfect and a high performer all the time trying to achieve that? And so it's very interesting that the military does many things for you but it also creates many problems, which is why we, a lot of the homeless we have in the United Kingdom are ex-forces people. because oh, they've here been, too. Here they've, too. Yeah, they've been used to the brotherhood. Right. So the veterans then find they haven't got that or they've been so used to being part of a community that looks after you that when they've lost that identity, they are adrift and they don't know how to cope with their emotions and they get involved in all sorts of trouble because they don't know what to do with their anger and their resentment. And also oh. my final thought, which I want to hear your thoughts on, is we were trained. Mm-hmm. So I served for a couple of years with the Scots Guards, who are a very elite British regiment. And I also did airborne training with the, the Airborne Brigade. And, and, and that's one up on others. That's one up on others, isn't it? So there's yeah, that, grandi- yeah. that grandiosity. And therefore, you can easily be very judgmental of others. 
very critical of others and also gossip about others being not good enough in order to, to in your mind, lift yourself above them. But it's, it's so defeatist and it's also pretty toxic. But the military encourages that to get that elitism. So that's the dark side of, of some of the military. I don't know what your thoughts are, Amelia. Well, and, and you're and there's also everything that you say is 100% correct. And there now from a behavior standpoint, I'd like to just shed the light on a little part of it. So in the military branches, and it really doesn't matter where in the world you enter into that and police and first responders, the initial part of the training is to break, to create trauma mm. between you and anything that you value right? It's exactly what we do with prisoners of war, right? Mm. So if you think about when you enter into the system, what do they do? Deprive you of sleep, right? They break your connections. They starve you. They overwork you to get you to this state mentally where you're completely drained so they can start programming you. And Mm. they program you with very specific messages for your psyche, behavior blocking, that becomes your identity. Mm. Now, here's the worst thing, the crime, the worst thing that happens after you've given your life to this identity with this superiority complex, I'm better than others, right? Which is reinforced daily in the military life and unite other, you know, women will fall, like all this other stuff that happens. You're now overly masculine in your ability to provide and protect. When you exit the military to try to become a civilian, they do nothing. They do nothing mm-hmm. to transform you back into any type of identity of a civilian. They just kick you out. Mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. The trauma on the way in, but the trauma on the way out is horrendous. Mm. And we ask these men and women to do this alone Mm. without a community and with no knowledge of behavior at all. None, no tools, no nothing. It is criminal. This is so so true. And I was uh, an instructor at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is, let me just turn that on. Um, which is uh, seen as the sort of top gun school of leadership in the world. I mean, you know, uh, we all have good banter with um, West Point, who think they're the best leadership center in the world. But I, I think, modestly, I think Sanders is one of them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I remember as an instructor, the the senior non-commissioned officer and I, I was the captain, he was the senior non-commissioned officer, we would take our officer cadets through a de-civilianization process. It was literally a deconstruction process. And and the only thing that they were bonded together was that they hated myself and the instructor. We didn't care because we were doing it deliberately to cause cause them to coalesce from Jamaica, Barbados, you know, Jordan, uh, you know, England, wherever they might have been. But they bonded together in their hatred of the instructors and the system. But they stuck together by each other. And the only other and time idolize, I- remember, as you're destroying the ideals, the idolization of the branch. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and that and that's it. And the only other time I've seen it where we coalesce so strongly was on Hoffman, 
but that was with full psychological safety that a group of 24 of us from UAE, Germany, America and Britain bonded together, as you said, the flock in your case, but that was a safe environment to be vulnerable. But in the military, it wasn't safe to be vulnerable. You had to put the mask on and you had to protect yourself and be more than you see. You know, I think it's General von Manstein that was, no, uh, General von Malk, the senior, one of the generals quoted to me when I was lucky enough to win an award. He said, Jonathan, remember this quote, work hard, make no waves, be more than you seem. And I, I and it's it's lovely in its quote. And it was General von Malk, the senior, who said that, a Prussian general. But this idea of, uh, of such high standards and such strong masculine leadership but then, as you say, when we left, there was nothing to prepare me. I chose to leave. I did my MBA through the Open University and left. But there was nothing for me. I think there was a, a sort of bit of training in finance or something, but nothing about, about the complex 20 years worth of psychological. Um, it's almost like a, a barn in, in the middle of the American Midwest that's been painted but it's rotting. So they paint over it again and layer upon layer of paint of different colors. And you never know what the original color of the barn was because you've layered it with so many layers of what you think is the right thing to do and to look the right way and to be the right way, do the right thing. And indeed sending people away to boarding school is a book for those who've uh, suffered from boarding school as I, my father, my mother, uh, and various other people I know went to boarding school. For some, it was fine, but for others, they call it the making of it. It'll be the making of them. No, it won't. It'll be the screwing up of them. But then we try and make it seem like training someone for the Victorian era, going out into a little outpost in the empire where the, you're the only white person among the local natives is going to be helpful. And it's not relevant anymore. But we do it. We pay lots of money for the pleasure. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Let me leave. Well, what's interesting, you know, again, I'm always going to show up as the behaviorist because it's my my area of expertise, but it's also my passion, is that when you take a look at overly developed masculine men, we're going to take military men for a second, right? In order to be masculine, you have to, and this is what the military does, is they create an intensified relationship with courage and bravery, Right. It's why men are so attracted to the military. Right. To be brave, to be courageous, to be strong without realizing don't look there. Look at the root of cur courage and bravery, which is vulnerability. And that's what the military is doing. They are redefining your relationship with vulnerability so they can because remember, the military would not be a military if they didn't have brave, courageous men. So they need the bravery and the courage. But what do they need to change? Your relationship with vulnerability. That's what they're doing with men. And that's why those men who have spent years, decades in that training, when they come into civilian type relationships, but you see it destroy in relationships within the military, right, with the female energy, is because they've reprogrammed vulnerability, there is no vibration from anything else, any other source in the world that's harmonious with what has been replaced 
as what they define as vulnerability. It's toxic. Now they're, that's why they break the wives. The wives cannot reach The more they're in, the more that there's this disconnect in the gap where they self-medicate back to what the military says is vulnerable, right? Toughen up, exercise, have a drink, right? Be promiscuous. But all these other self-medicating that they put in vulnerability, that is not vulnerability, to keep and lock in the ability to direct the courage and the bravery. Oh, that is so pertinent and, and so sad to, to know it because it's only since I'm leaving the military that I've been able to adopt the saying that only the strong can be vulnerable and to be appropriately vulnerable in a psychologically safe environment where you can talk about your feelings and your emotions. And, and I remember as we were training to go into situations where we were under life fire, where friends of mine in Iraq and Afghanistan and others have been, uh, I, I count myself very lucky. Though at the time I thought I'd missed out on the greatest opportunity, I joined just before the Falklands War, which was 1982. And I was so disappointed that I never went to the war. I just missed out and I could have gone. I wish I'd been in a unit that got selected like the parachute regiment or the Gurkhas or the Scots Guards. I even joined the Scots Guards as a platoon commander just as they came back. And I saw all these very traumatically damaged individuals. Some couldn't serve on anymore, had to leave. One guy got half his head, Lawrence, uh, an officer, half his head blown off. And, and, and I thought, gosh, I missed out on that. I wish I'd been there because that's the epitome of everything. We're trained to be courageous and go to war. and have... But now I realized what a lucky escape I had because had I gone and done that, I don't think I'd have the quality of a relationship I have with Lee and with my daughters now because I am at last able to start talking about it. But but I was even, even I was very disconnected from my emotions and my feeling of my body and my spirit. But now at least I can slightly do that. But I know others who've been there, they're just so far away from ever being able to talk about their feelings or their emotions. They just get on and do it. So I've got out so excited. I could stiff stiff so, up a lip, stiff up a lip, old boy. So inside the behavior of the masculine male, inside of that behaviorally, right? We're going to get into tactics for a second. The ground floor of masculinity is very eye-centric, provide strength, right? That all that stuff that we're talking about. And that is the base, the foundation of masculine energy. The amplification, the part that is now beyond impactful, beyond self, right? Generationally impactful, impactful with their significant others and now their children and their community. What really the masculine energy is looking for is the ripple effect, right? Outside of solo thinking. And we don't talk or teach masculine men about the union and the vibration of the connection, the infinity loop which is the relationship between the masculine and the feminine energy. We don't teach it. We don't identify it. We don't give the tools because what happens is you go, uh, it, we're talking about masculine energy, right? I, 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 connection, 
birthing the infinity loop, which is between the two energies of giving and receiving, but also masculine and feminine, that now that infinity loop then becomes behaviorally stacking into our most powerful highest self. Our most powerful and highest self is not I-centric. It's not possible. Because we are, if all things have energy, we can agree that all things have energy and all things have a frequency. In order to get to all, all, you must learn the levels of I to we to a very different responsibility into united, right? Which then happens through the stacking. And so we have all these marketing messaging and all of these dysfunctional juvenile relationships that stopped in high school and we repeat them for 30 years, telling men this message that is only that when you talk about behavioral, right? You, you go through behavioral cycles as you become who you are, your identity and your, right? And your impact on all, all that stuff works like steps. And we have stopped our messaging at what is around an 18 to 22 year old male, the stacking of I, and then we leave them there. Mm, mm. And then men wonder why, I don't know why I'm in my relationship with my, my better half and I don't have these things. So there must be something wrong with me. And then we tell them to feminize, to become the feminine man. And the minute he starts leaning into the feminine man, all of the stuff that caused him to achieve here starts to break and get this whatever. And they never actually connect between these two units, which is really what he's saying. So this is this is really so interesting. And you've just recently published your book, Designing Genius. Mm-hmm. Do you touch on this in the in the Designing Genius book? Or is yes. this something that's separate? Yeah, yeah, no. So in Designing Genius, I had to, and I mean, it's so frustrating, right? I like to start in the middle because that's where I excel. However, what I realized, painfully realized, is that basic life skills, basic fundamental life skills were removed from our society. As we moved away from communities and tribe, again, for me, and again, this may be my Italian part of me, uh, or that I'm older than dirt, I was raised where my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, everybody, from the walk from school to home, if I had done something wrong, the entire community, I was yelled at before I even walked in my front door, right? And so I was raised with a very Italian community that worked as a tribe. It wasn't just letting down my mom and my dad. Everyone knew, everyone knew. And we broke apart communities, right? As we all, you know, technology, innovations, airline, all this stuff. And now we have solo families without understanding at a very core of a human, we are meant to be part of a tribe or a community. We need the matriarch, right? It's not just the male. And see, this is the stuff that drives me crazy, okay? We are living an absolute lie as humans. As humans, we've discounted the need for community, Mm. right? Mm. We have now created this absurdity about partnerships, marriage, however you want to label it, that I'm going to get 
all things of value from one person. Mm. What? So, so, so stay with that a moment because it is so very interesting. This idea of this perfect um, union of one-on-one <laughs> oh, when of designed yeah. for one-on-many. Well, this is this is what's so interesting in in that uh, in marrying Lee uh, almost eight years ago now, I, I joined a Irish Catholic community <laughs> in the Republic of Ireland in Bundor and Donegal, where a family reunion would have forty people in a room, all speaking at the same time, all chatting away, and they all knew each other's stories. That you know, my mother-in-law was one of four sisters and a brother, and and there was that sense of community. So. I found before Hoffman, when people came to visit us and live and stay with myself and Lee, members of my family, I was rather resentful of them interrupting my one-on-one time with Lee because later in my life, I just wanted that. But actually now, since I've been on the Hoffman, I go, this is what it's all about. It's all about the family and the community. And, And while I will continue to through podcasts and through my coaching, support other people. And Leah set up a charity for vulnerable girls who are going through abuse and modern day slavery. Uh, and, and that it, we give a lot of time and effort and our money to. The, the most important part is my relationship with Lee and our four children. And now we've got two grandchildren who are here. And like the back there, I've got two dogs crashed out. And, and it's all this part of the family. So people coming to stay, that's really important. And I have this rather than resenting it. Now I welcome it. But but that's late in life to be no, doing this. It, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with late in life. It is you have done work. Remember, there's a difference between your practice and your work. But you've mm. done work on power and control. Mm. You were conditioned with a relationship with power and control and a belief system that your power and control had the influence of the outcome. Now you're asking your power and control belief system to share the thing that you value the most. That's too high of a risk. I'm not sharing. Because if something else influences your wife, you're at risk. That's what's happening. Mm. And as you develop a new relationship with power and control and to release that the outcome is the outcome, Mm. You are now creating space that she's been asking for, for Mm. intimacy. You cannot have intimacy through power and control. Well, this is so, so profound what you've just said (laughs) through a lifetime. And by the way, we don't know each other. I don't know. See, this is a behavior. I'm mirroring where you need to look. Well, Well, this is what's so very interesting. And clearly you're very good at what you do. I'm really enjoying this. Um, and the old me would have been uncomfortable about this. It's sort of like, I'm being seen. This is horrible. I feel like I, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm undressed in front of the whole audience. But, I, but my feminine now, energy loves you. Do you understand that that's the, my female side wants to kiss your whole face off, squeeze you in celebration, love the union you have with your wife. Mm. Well, this is what's so interesting, because as I've come back from understanding much more, being much more aware, having certain uh, behavioral patterns which are help healthy to break the toxic ones that I grew up with, I've realized I don't have to be in control of everything and in charge and leading through everything and, and trying to make sure that everything works as I imagine it should work out. And if it doesn't, I'm really quite stressed about it. And and and, and 
So living with me, I mean, Lee's an absolute saint. To live with someone like me who was so in need of power and control, but now I'm going, do you know what? I, you know, I've got this watch here and you can't, you can only just see there, but people listening, I've got this watch. It's not worth very much. I don't know. Um, but it's got a strap which got chewed by the dog. Now, I mean, normally I wouldn't wear this anymore because it looks a complete sort of mess. But I go, that's great because that's imperfect. And I'm not in charge of the puppy who who just was doing her best. So I didn't shout at her or them. I just moved her away and gave her a different toy to choose rather than my watch strap. But I think it's important to realize the only thing I can control, and it's not even well then, is my thoughts and my actions. I can't even control yours or influence others. But I was always in this this mistaken belief through trying harder and working harder, going higher performance and higher and climbing the next mountain that I could have full power and be in control of what happens in my life. And I cannot. My brother died last year. It was 10 weeks from when he was diagnosed with cancer to when he died. I had no control over that whatsoever. These things will happen. I'm not going to just roll on my back and go, I'm going to give up now because I have no control. But I'm much happier with not having power and not having control. Does that make sense? Oh, my gosh, yes. And so as the behaviorist, I'd love to welcome you into another side of that watch, right? Dogs which represent for the most part, unconditional love, hmm. right? You Can you, we agree that yep, yep. Okay. dogs have an intimacy with their owners, right? You are the pillar of importance to the dog and dogs will, they're over people pleasers. And so the scent of your watch, remember dogs are mouth. And so the dog, that, that watch represents for me as your behavior your ability to receive love in all forms mm -hmm. and my wife's shoes are all three pairs <laughs> but it's the scent yeah. right it's the scent it's it's a form of love now you behaviorally correct the dog but when you understand the essence of behavior, of what's really going on, I say it all the time, what you think is happening is not what's happening. And you have to be open to the different stories of what's happening, yours, mine, and what's called the third entity, right? That's created. And that's part of behavioral training. Behavioral work is to understand that. And when we look at what we've created, we've created within our unions of partnership and marriage, failure. We created the failure because as a human, I need the relationship with the matriarch, the older female, for Amelia to be her best version of self. I need the relationship with other women that are around my same age and not around the same type of journey for me to be my best self. The minute I try to turn my boyfriend, my husband, my lover... Um, and I identify female, um, into my girlfriend, I have disconnected intimacy. You cannot be intimate to me if I've turned you into my girlfriend because the behavior between two women, two female energies is very different than the vibration between the masculine and the feminine. And we have been conditioned through Disney and advertising and everything else that this one mate, male or female, right, is supposed to be my source of love, and lust, and intimacy, and knowledge, and provider, and friend, and confidant, and therapist, and parent, and 
We've created one source. Just think about that from, because I'm so, statistically, statistically, it is impossible for you, the sole source, to fill all of my needs if I'm trying to be the highest and best version of myself. But yet somebody decide to tell the difference instead of understanding that there was a reason for the tribe. The tribe was designed for a reason. And the worst thing that could happen to a human, where we designed our prisons on, by the way, the worst thing that could happen to a human is they to be ostracized by the tribe. That was the worst thing because we knew then that solo, we can't survive. It's not that we can't survive tactically, we can't survive emotionally. And we've channeled this into an unrealistic relationship. And then we judge it by saying it's not working because he can't be all things or she can't be all things for all of my needs. Well, the only way I can be all things for all your needs if we flatline where we are today. But when you understand from a behavior standpoint, who you are today, what you think, what you believe, how you behave, your day-to-day tactics, beliefs, and behaviors must die in order to bring forth your future self. So you create a war between your future self and today. And because today is more practiced and rehearsed, it usually wins. Mm. So so I'm really interested. We've majored on... My experience in the military and your brothers and the people you've worked with, first responders, things like that. But a lot of the people listening have have never served in the military, but they're in corporations, they're CEOs of corporations, they're senior executives, CMOs, whatever it might be, a whole variety of, or, or people on the way up. What is the learning that you'd say for those people in business who've not had the benefit or also the toxicity of the military life what is what what is the learning for them that from what we've been saying oh my god so where do you think the original hierarchy of business was created from yeah from the military wasn't it yeah of course where did we get the definition of leadership where do we get the definition of team where do we get the definition of hierarchy all from our military Mm. go back in history where was it created Mm. from the military And of course, as someone once said, a corporation is psychopathic in its design. It has an identity, but it has no heart and it has no soul. So therefore, it does things for the best interest of shareholders, which is why it destroys people's lives, careers, hopes, aspirations, because it's a machine just munching them up. Um, If you can get get an organization that has heart and soul, that's very special. Designing genius. That's the whole reason why I came out of retirement was I needed to get inside organizations, right? Remember, I've exited nine different companies. And the biggest value driver that I've always received is based on my people operating system. How do you operate people into the value drivers of a company? And again, for those people that are experienced in business, know that The only thing that is measured and equates to value, your valuation of the company, is value drivers. Anything that you're doing that's outside of the value drivers of your business is for your own ego and entertainment. Because at the end, in the exit, when you go through your valuation, it is what it is. And that formula has been around forever and it ain't changing anytime soon. And so we 
end up being a business that either is a machine, that's one set of business, or you become an ego-driven machine that you still are increasing your value, but it's really all about you. And that creates major, major trauma dumping on everybody else. And so as we move back to the hybrid worker, the remote worker, where we are now, there must be a people operating system within the organization that is in tune with what drives value for each individual within the organization. The new position that you started to hear about, a people officer, an experience officer, a heart officer, we've heard you know, all these new titles that are joining the C-suite, that we used to call it an integrator, is to integrate the value drivers of the individuals and the value drivers of the company to integrate those two things together. That's what a people operating system is. Now, a people operating system must have the ability to reflect or help somebody understand what they say they want versus what that experience is of what they want. Because remember, humans are flawed. I say I want a billion dollar company. I say I want houses, cars, planes, trains, and automobiles. But nobody is there to say, oh, if this, then this is what you will trade for that. And me to go, oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to trade that. Oh, then let's change the destination or let's change your value system. And that is what a behaviorist does. Wow. Now we're just skimming the surface of this and we're sadly coming to the towards the end of our time. But I, I think um, so much we could talk about. And I deliberately threw to the wind my usual questions, knowing that we would go off piste. Um, it is interesting that, that the uh, the research that we did about what makes high-performing, inspiring leaders, and of course, many of the things, people's value system, uh, you've touched upon that, what gives their life meaning and purpose, looking after their health and well-being and their psychological safety, um, looking after their cultural intelligence, their diversity and the acceptance of difference, then look after their emotional intelligence, look after their resilience, uh, their brand, their reputation, what people say about them when they're not in the room. And finally, the legacy that they leave, leaving things better than they found them. So actually, much of what you are writing about in Designing Genius and what we've talked about does link with what we have found. But this is of a, of a different level, a depth and a quality that I find very exciting. So I well, am... that's why your work is so critical. Yeah. Your work is critical for anybody who wants to accept the responsibility of their leadership role. You have to understand what that means today. So your work is imperative. I'm a behaviorist. I'm like the intel inside. I'm the tools. I'm the light connected to the shadow that lives inside of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I can see that. So thank you. Really exciting. It's just the start of things. And I, I would recommend people, um, is there an audio version of your book as well as a, a written one? Is it? I'm, we just, the book literally just came out in the last week or so. And so I'm now going to go in studio to do the auditory, but I wanted to really kind of get a feel for, from responses from the book before I recreated, uh, created the audit, because I'm going to do it. I'm not going to just do a read. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I thought you'd make it slightly different. So 
let me know when you've done that and I'll listen to it, review it. And then, of course, we, we'll do a, a rematch and we can, when I've been through your process, because you're very kindly going to let me yeah. experience it, we can chat about the audio that I will have listened to and, and also um, experiencing it. So as we come towards the end, Amelia, let's perhaps focus on your two-minute top tip. So would you kind of introduce yourself again, say, tell them about your book and your business? Uh, in a in a in a little uh, thumbnail print, uh, and then share your two minute top leadership tip that you found practically has helped people a lot. So my name is Amelia Antonetti, and I am a behaviorist. I'm the CEO of Designing Genius, that is bringing forth the people operating system for the hybrid, remote, and today's worker. I will say that for myself, for somebody who has had 53,000 employees across nine different companies, my best leadership tip is that what you believe as a leader is happening, what is going on in each of the different relationships you have with your C-suite or your individual's uh, teammates, what you think is happening is never what is happening. And I'm saying is never what is happening. And the greatest work that you can do is to help unwind for others the true problem that you are solving. And I don't mean that from a tactical standpoint. I mean that from a behavior stand standpoint, that when you can lead people inward to their own journey of what success means to them based on their own value drivers. You become the leader that will impact them for generations to come because you reshape who they are and how they show up. That is what the true essence of a leader is. Your responsibility is to those who have chosen to follow you. And when you lean into the new responsibility for today's worker, you actually create your legacy. Wow, Amelia, great wise advice and, and very deep and that we need to think about that a lot. Thank you so much for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. <laughs> and I look forward to uh, episode two, which we'll do in a few months time. But thank you. It was great having you as a guest. Oh my God, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having, having me here. Okay, bye for now. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.